Hello and welcome to the Mastermind Site podcast. I'm Reese and I will be leading you through a very exciting talk that we have today. I'm very excited to talk about unstructured environments, particularly in Canada, but how we can create these environments for players all around the world. And I have an outstanding guest joining me today to talk about some of these topics. So here is the great Adam Stapleton. Thank you, Reese. That's a very uh, kind introduction there. I don't think I've had an introduction as great as that. This audio, nobody will see me blushing, right? So that's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. We had an amazing conversation over the phone recently in preparation for this podcast, kind of breaking the fourth wall here. But it was just amazing to hear your thoughts. And I'm, I'm very excited to hear about all of your different experiences working in two different countries. Um, I think you're going to add a lot of great knowledge for all of our listeners today. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Yeah. I'm going to ask you first about kind of who you are as a coach, a brief history about you as an educator of the game, uh, some of the things you did before coming to Canada and all of the all of the work you've done leading up to this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously, as you can hear, I'm not from Canada originally. Uh, I'm actually from London, England. I have to say that often here in Canada. <laughs> And I'm actually from Tottenham, which is a, uh, a part of London in the north, um, is actually traditionally quite a poor part of London, although like many global cities, there are some instances of gentrification creeping in. But uh, I, I grew up there on, I guess, what would be the equivalent of like a, a co-op housing type project, or in, in England, we call it a council estate, which uh, back then would be like a mainly a mixture of working class and lower socioeconomic residents, right? Um, and I guess that is important because within these um, like estates, you have all of these environments where you can play soccer. And um, um, what I mean is you can make soccer happen in ways that you, you probably wouldn't anticipate. So, you know, playgrounds with swings and slides and uh, there was a roundabout actually a, literally in my back where my back little garden was um and how it would work most times would be your friend would come out your best friend i remember this one guy's a little bit older he's my brother's friend actually gavin but it would come out with this this ball that had like barely any leather panels left on it and you would play 1v1 the wall behind them would be a goal there were like two posts and my goal was the climbing frame because it had kind of two sides to it so I think that is important because that kind of shaped not only my beliefs as a player, but just my love for the game. It was never kind of team-based or trophy-based, if you will. It was always just like something to do, and it was a social pursuit as well. Um, and there's, there's nobody there kind of telling you, don't do that move. Or So I think it is important, firstly, that my background kind of influenced my coaching approach yeah absolutely it sounds like a lot of your early experiences ended up shaping how you were going to coach later on for tottenham hotspur so can you talk more about how some of these early influences might have inspired your coaching philosophies methodologies and also the kind of roles that you were taking up at the club to be honest i was a little bit lost in my life until i hit my mid-20s and i did my level one coaching certificate which I guess that over here, you probably have like the community workshop. You have something that kind of introductory qualification. Yeah. Yeah. It was suggested by a friend's mother that actually said, Hey, you like, you like football. Why don't you 
why didn't you go and do that qualification? And I never really, I didn't really have the belief, to be honest. Like, I always just felt that those cool things were things that other people did. So uh, I did my, my level one back in 2011, and then I really enjoyed it. So not long afterwards, I did what is called the Youth Award, which is probably similar to like a fundamentals workshop here, I would imagine. And it just, I just loved it so much and it really opened my eyes and I think it gave me a lot of confidence. So in 2011, I learned that Tottenham Hotspur had a volunteer scheme and obviously being from the area, I was naturally a, a fan. So I, I thought, you know, this is great. Not only can I, can I learn and sort of develop, but it's, it's my club, it's my team, right? And uh, I remember being fortunate, fortunate to be shortlisted for the interview. So I'm walking up to White Hart Lane as it was back then. The interview in itself was an achievement in my in my in my head. And actually, in the foyer, as I was waiting for the uh, volunteer coordinator to come and interview me, was Raphael Van der Vaart. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then, so the the coordinator was really kind. He's like, "Hey, you're a Spurs fan, right?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, massive." He's like, "Come, let's let's go get a picture." So, I mean, what a way to start an interview, right? <laughs> so, I I interviewed on the first project I was involved in is is actually a fairly famous project now in in Europe, but it's called Kicks. And Kicks is funded by the Metropolitan Police, and its main its main kind of emphasis is to give children, similar to myself, I guess, in in, in some respects, growing up on those council estates, the opportunity to to be uh, busy and engaged. And typically, a lot of the people coming through may have been from uh, like crime or gang backgrounds. Not everybody, but. The idea essentially is that it was something for, for children to do that was productive and, and actually in their backyard. Yeah, that's awesome. And my understanding too of these kinds of programs is that not only does it give these youth a chance to play, but it gives them kind of an unstructured environment where they can kind of own their learning experience a bit more and not have to have the pressures that come with being part of a club team. It was unstructured. We would do warm-ups and we would certainly do little technical sessions, but the aim really was to facilitate like games. Our personalities was a key part of it too. And I was a volunteer, so I can't take credit. The, the coaches I watched there and I engaged with, I learned so much from. These kids are like tough kids that so you have to earn their mm -hmm. trust. So I, I volunteered for probably around six months. And then I actually discovered that the club ran a degree program. And it was the only club at the time in England to offer a degree. So they had partnered with the Middlesex University and the degree was in sport and community development, which is a little bit of a, a regular, like normally when you think of sport, you think of either sports coaching or sports science. This was actually had a bit of a political flavor because it was all about how sport is used to tackle social ills. So prevent crime, fight obesity, even things like teaching literacy and, and math um, and I'll touch upon that a little bit later on, but I found it really interesting because it had all the coaching, it had a coaching module, it had practical components, but it also got me thinking about the wider power of sport and, and what is sport really for? It, it actually got me to think about my environment and how, how important sport was and I didn't even know it. Um, I, I wasn't the sort of kid that was going off to a Disneyland or, you know, mum mom, mom and dad couldn't afford that. So. Yeah. so I completed my degree in 2015. I graduated and I was offered a full-time job with the Tottenham Hotspur Foundation, which for context is the charitable community arm of the club. 
Um, and, and nowadays, most clubs have these branches, but back then, um, and I believe they started, I think it was 2006 um, when they started, but back then it was quite rare. And I think the main the main reason was because you had a Premier League entity, a, you know, a private partnership there in a, in a very poor, underprivileged part of North London. So it was, it was this adage of giving back. So I was offered a full-time role with the foundation, um, and there was some development coaching with that, so still coaching on these community projects. So I did that for uh, approximately three years, and um, prior to me moving here, I was actually lucky enough, too, to go and work at the club's academy teaching the year one and year two scholars their sports theory. So, you know, like any scholarship, there's an education component, and I got I was able to teach that for six months just before I moved here pretty much. But to be honest, most of my experience was in that fundamental phase and was very much community-based. Right. And then I imagine you come here and it's all club-based, more business, a lot less of that communal atmosphere. Often we have a problem here with it being a little bit expensive as well. So I guess, what are some of the differences between Canada and England, not just in terms of the landscape, but also in terms of the player differences? The first thing you notice is a different type of player in those environments. Firstly, players are or can be inherently selfish. Soccer is, I kind of use like a a b-boy analogy or like an old school hip-hop battle where it's not just about getting the ball. It's about, can I dribble around an opponent? Can I? And typically it's your friend, right? So there's kind of a banter involved in that. So you, you have this whole different mentality right away that, for them, it's not necessarily a team game. So if if I'm to paraphrase the great coach educator, Chris Ramsey, I, he has a quote that really resonated with me that says, the game within development is the vehicle for the individual. So obviously, as children become teenagers and young adults, our emphasis changes somewhat. But my experience was heavily in that kind of that fundamental or foundation phase of development. And it, it was just really cool to see kids doing things that like I hadn't even imagined or envisioned. I think the most, I could certainly dribble and I love taking players on, but probably the most extravagant thing I did was flick my collar up like Eric Cantona in primary school. <laughs> um, you know, we've probably all heard about the Brazilian favelas and, you know, those, those soccer hotbeds, those talent hotbeds as described in like Daniel Coyle's talent code. But I felt like I was really in one in, in London. Um, and it's probably too long for me to get into, but I'd written an article or two that really looked at some of the socioeconomic factors that feed into that. Um, and I, I think now, actually, if you look at the if you look at the England team, sorry, and you look at the likes of Jaden Sancho, uh, Reese Nelson at Arsenal, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Tammy Abraham, all of these guys came from similar type of projects in South London. And I think there is a a mentality that goes with growing up and playing soccer in a particular way um, on these projects. When I moved here, firstly, I was really astounded by specifically London, Ontario. I was astounded by actually how much passion there was for the game because I I really had no idea what to expect. Um, I'd reached out to a number of clubs was really lucky and fortunate to to be offered a role so that I could start within a within a month of landing. You know, you just kind of have that stereotypical the kids are going to be like into ice hockey or basketball, and that's just my kind of narrow narrow lens, I guess. 
um, having not lived here. I think for me, I, I brought that kind of Tottenham Hotspur or Tottenham mentality where I was like, I'm always looking for the individuals though. I always want to know who's the, the lock picker, who is the player that can change things, make things happen. And, and I certainly saw, you know, I saw players that actually I could see them, could see that underneath the surface and sometimes overt, right? And like I said, even before sessions, seeing these kids doing around the world and, you know, these kids are living in the YouTube generation where they can like, the things they can access and, and do is, is, is amazing. One thing that just really stands out to me so far is just these kind of spaces that you mentioned in terms of what you worked on with the kicks program in particular are these types of programs widespread across the uk and england it's not just like a london thing and if so like how can we do more to create these kind of programs in canada because i think this is something that's probably missing i'm sure these kind of programs exist to some degree here but i don't think we have enough of these spaces particularly for youth to get out of trouble and do something positive like participate in sport so what are your some some of your thoughts on that yeah so these projects are nationwide in terms of canada i think the first thing i think here is that sport as a whole is generally an organized pursuit and and i i do appreciate there's there's somewhat a generalization there and i'll, I'll kind of touch upon that in, in, a, in a while but i think firstly most as soon as a young player thinks about playing soccer the next question is, I need to find a team. And I think in the UK, or certainly with my upbringing and, and the kids that I worked with, some of them probably never played for team. Right. And they would be like the most individual players, but they would have like loads of technique, you know, very motivated, but not like I didn't grow up playing. I think I played on two teams and I actually didn't really enjoy the experience. And even to this day, I, I think I still prefer playing like an eight or a seven aside side mm. game. I feel like there's just far more involvement. So I think the, the first difference really, um, and feel free to correct me, but is, yeah, I think here the first thing is it's a team sport, which it inevitably is. But I think the problem is sometimes coaches, and this happens all over the world as well, coaches kind of rush to teach the game before they develop the individual. And, and that's not an original argument. You know, you can probably see this on Twitter every other day of the week. And, and I think the first thing is to to really build the basics of that child and their relationship with the ball. Um, Glenn Hoddle, being a Tottenham fan, the ex-England manager and the ex-Tottenham manager and Chelsea manager, but he had a great quote after a game. He said, it's it's not called kickball, it's called football, you know, at least in Europe. Um, so there's, there has to be a relationship, right? It's not purely about kicking the ball away. It's you do that, but you, you do that at the, the most opportune time. And sometimes you can't do that, right? Sometimes there isn't a pass on or you're outnumbered. It's a 2v1 or you're in a you're a wide part of the field where you've got to find a solution. And, and ultimately that has to come from your feet. So I think the first real big opportunity is how do we develop players to have that relationship with the ball? And I think lockdown is really interesting because it's kind of had to force everyone into a ball mastery space which is it's really amazing some of the the footage i've seen and some of the sessions i've i've kind of looked over seeing the footwork and i'm like it's there right so when i watch the games what happens and i, I think once again this is a an adult problem and not just a canadian problem this is a yeah this is an adult global problem but we just rush to the game and we rush to safety possession keeping the ball 
And um, I think for me, I'm always motivated by it. That's great, but we need to give them the other solution. So for me, there's there's two kind of, I think here, by and large, it's more of a team team pursuit. And with that, that means it's, it's a structured adult-led environment. Like yeah. we call the shots. The game actually dictates our methodology, which once again, at a, at a younger age, I think that that can be problematic. So I, I think there's an opportunity firstly there. How do we get kids to be as good as they can be? And I also don't want people to misunderstand. I'm not talking about everyone has to be a Ronaldo and dribble past people. You know, if you outside cut and turn and pass the ball back to your goalkeeper, that is individual possession. That's that's great. And, and that's that's all I'm saying is how do we make how do we make kids comfortable on the ball? That that they don't feel afraid or pressurized to, like I say, kick, kick the ball away. It's awesome to hear you say because a lot of people have this viewpoint and would agree with you but it's something that we don't really focus on enough i think and i do i do definitely agree that sometimes we can be a bit too quick to rush into tactics and teaching all of the different sides of the game and one connection that i thought of right away is i've been very heavily involved with active start programming over the years so three to six year olds and these are players that like we don't necessarily even teach them to pass the ball at all because it should just be all about their relationship with the ball their love for the ball getting on it as much as possible and you always have parents screaming at the kids on the sideline like pass the ball pass like he's five years old like he's taking players on he's doing a great job cheer him on rather than yelling at him to pass the ball right so i think it really is important that this message gets reinforced that it's not always about a possession-based game and that individualistic behaviors can be a very good thing as well um so i guess two questions to go off on this is how do we create some of these things within our environments and can these sort of unstructured environments that you talked about in the UK help with that and also if not or adding on to that how can our coaching methodologies inspire this kind of individualistic taking players on ball mastery type of skill development as well yeah it's a really good question um I think firstly just on your your comment on that very young age group right you know, think about the psychology of a child that age. Children are inherently selfish because they are, yeah. you know, a, a child is purely the be- The most beautiful thing about childhood is that I don't know about you, but my whole day and life was built around a pursuit of fun. That doesn't change on the soccer field. They're not, if they have the ball at their feet and they're loving having the ball, they're not going to think about, oh, maybe I should pass it down there. And, you know, that's, that's not within a child's psychology in those really early uh, formative years. Absolutely. And if you look at the work of Chris van der Hagen of, of the Royal Belgium um, you know, Football Association, who I was lucky enough to meet at the Ontario Soccer Summit in January of 2020, just before the pandemic, the work they've done started around the millennium. So, you know, it's had, it's had a good 16, 17, 18 year gestation period. But, you know, at that age group you described, they simply play 2v2s. And once again, this is this is nothing revolutionary. If you look on the internet, you can find there's articles on this. And But, you know, at that age, it's a binary thing. Can I dribble? If not, maybe I share it and I give it to my teammate. Or also, if you look at the Spanish, they have Fininho, which is 3v3 with four goals. So you also have more goals, right? More goals, more motivation. More fun. More fun. So I think we... We as coaches, wherever we are, to be honest, once again, this this is an adult soccer problem or tendency. 
we have to try and relinquish some of the, those controls and relinquish some of those expectations. Um, and I, I think actually, I, I have definitely seen some really great practice. And, you know, when I coach those age groups, it's really about trying to relate the game and what the game is to maybe more abstract things. Yeah. Does the right winger become a cheater? I've I've referenced like SpongeBob SquarePants in sessions with kids that age, you know, like how do you just make it click for them? Because they're not going to behave. I think about some of my own sessions, you know, early in my career when the stereotypical kids bunching together, my P teacher used to call it the scrambled egg or the poached egg, you know, like they get the yolk in the middle and coaches just despairing because they wouldn't space out. And, and once again, not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, a neuroscience person, but kids, the spatial awareness, the, the selfish nature of a young child, which is perfectly normal. Yeah, they're, they're all going to go for the ball because that's where the action's at, right? So I think the first thing, you know, to incorporate that into our, our methodologies, we, we probably have to just think about how do we set up and carve those spaces so that we can facilitate those small, small-sided games. The Belgium FA looked at that. They even looked at like 5v5 and it was like, this is still too big, you know, for that particular age group. We probably need to strip it back even more. And I remember a couple of years ago, just researching and Toronto FC actually had a really cool uh, methodology piece called me, we, and us. And I find that's such a great way of looking at that development, you know? So firstly, can I play with my feet, me and the ball? We is a little bit more like the 2v2 or the 2v1. So it becomes slightly binary pass or dribble. So you can develop some of that basic decision-making and then us, yeah, maybe we get to the 5v5 and, you know, maybe you're moving into eight or nine years old and kids can start to process cognitively what's going on a little bit more effectively. But I think that, once again, it has to be with that kind of individual lens. But because no soccer game is played 2v2 or 3v3, there, there could be a tendency to say, well, that that that's not the game. The game doesn't resemble that. Just think of, you know, if you're teaching the alphabet's too simple an analogy, but I'll use that one. You know, when, when kids are at school, we don't try to get them to write the paragraph, right? We start with the alphabet. We start with letters. Then we go to words. Then we go to sentences. Then we go to paragraphs. And then later on, we can have more abstract you know, it's a story. There's maybe a plot. There's some characterization. And I think it's the same. I think it's just sometimes, and I'm certainly guilty of this, we jump to, give me a paragraph, Grim. Give me a story. And then, and if a kid can't turn or dribble out of pro- a trouble or at least try something to, to get away, then they're going to be stuck in, you know, the game then becomes not fun. Um, and, and I do once again acknowledge this is an oversimplification Chris, Chris van der Hagen said that at the time, parents were initially very skeptical, but then when, when they started to see that the improvement and the joy that their, their son or daughter was having, and, and also objectively, like um, there's a famous Manchester United study as well, where this was with slightly older kids, forgive me, I, I can't remember the exact age, but they did, they also kind of dropped down from a 7v7 to a 4v4, and like, you know, touches went up 200%. So it's really about trying to simplify the game and break it down so that you have more individual. And I think the first thing that has to come with is I'm here to develop a player first, not 
a team for the game. And I know that might be a little bit <laughs> abstract to some, but that's what true development can be. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I think in our methodologies in Canada, uh, we've often now shifted towards this whole part, whole game activity, game style of our coaching methodologies, particularly in our sessions. Where in those sessions is maybe the room for these sort of um, activities where kids just have a ball at their feet and they're learning to take players on, doing a lot of 1v1s? Is it always in that activity? Is it in the warm-up? Where can we fit this in? Because I will say as well, before you answer that, I do a lot of one-on-one sessions and I almost entirely work on uh, that sort of individual repetition-based skill technique type of things in those one-on-one sessions. So what are your thoughts on that? How do you fit it into your training sessions? Yeah, it's a great question because obviously naturally once you have a philosophy or, you know, an idea of how you want to develop players or why, you have to inevitably think about your methodology, right? I think the first thing to say is sometimes in coaching, people adopt a very binary point of view, unopposed, drill-based, you know, skill-based, or your the game is the teacher, let the game teach, teaching games for understanding. Um, You'll read a lot about perception, action, coupling. And I think the first thing is that that I do believe there's a place for everything and not at the same time, but within the context. And I think as you grow as a coach, you start to understand where some of these things actually are effective. So for me, firstly, and I'm I'm gonna borrow from René Muhlenstein here and I'm paraphrasing, Maybe I've kind of slightly changed the meaning, perhaps not, but but he says as a coach, we, we have to kind of achieve two things with players. We have to take them from awareness to understanding. And, and that really resonated with me because you may have a player, and I see this a lot, if we consider the effect of sporting age, where you might have, let's say, an eight-year-old. Adam has only started playing for a year. Reese has played since he was three in his basement, in his backyard goes to the park with his mother or his father. They may be the same, you know, biological age. So they, they may have similar body compositions, similar physical attributes. They may even have a similar chronological age. Maybe they're born, you know, because we all know about relative age effect. But the sporting age really is the challenge because you may get in groups kids with vastly different experiences. And I think then linking it back to the methodology, if I always just put kids in games and they don't have that technical grasp, chances are that kid doesn't learn those core skills. I think you have to gauge at what point do you become more prescribed and maybe set up an activity or a drill that just focuses on a 1v1 or a 2v1, something that is, you know, fixed, repetitive. Uh, and, and once again, there's plenty of people out there that will will shun this idea but conversely you might have the kid that that's not going to help them that they've got that technical base they now need to develop their understanding um, of some of the smaller principles or or the principles of the game yeah the whole pothole was quite new to me as well because in england typically we have colloquially we'd call it up the steps so that is where you yeah. have your one technical which is termed as unopposed skill which is termed as opposed and then game so it kind of scaffolds up into a contextual environment. 
And I'm a little biased, but I always like that because I think what you did, you showed the kid what the skill was. They could practice it in isolation. They could just get a feel for it. And then slowly you built it up into a contextual. And that's my belief really is that sometimes in coaching, we we spend a lot of time kind of critiquing. And, and I think it really depends on the individual in front of you and where they're at in their journey. To answer your question, though, to, to build like the individual I still think you have the opportunity of a warm-up. Pete Sturgis of the English FA has some fantastic resources in the foundation phase. One of my favourite games is actually called the stadium game. Um, and, and it's two halves of the field. One half is populated by number ones with a soccer ball. The other halves are number twos without. They run in, they invade. Can they take the ball and bring it back into their half? Conversely, can the number ones just stay on the ball? So there's a big emphasis on staying on the ball. And I think those things, they're not, they're fun. They're really fun. They're challenging. They're not super hard because you can kind of control who who pairs with who and you can change the time limits. It's it's a very hardworking game. And alternatively, you have that middle piece as well, that activity piece where I think maybe you can, you can almost set out some, some questions or challenges within the introductory game. So, you know, if you were, it's obviously depending on the age context, but let's let's say you're working on like switch and play. Maybe you use that activity piece to work on the technique of maybe it's your first touch with the outside of your foot, opening up your hip. Mm-hmm. Maybe you work on passing, right? Because perhaps with a switch and play, you're going to play a nice low pass along the floor, cut the grass as I call it, playing it and zipping it along. Try and uh, see what what challenges or what the problems are and then we can kind of take it back to that within and and explore that in detail it took a while for me to get my head around because I was used to that kind of one two three approach if you will but I think what's really great is that the kids go into that game environment but I I think it's such a nuanced thing because like I say if you have kids that are really new to the game and I've seen this they will they will be lost or they can be lost and I, I certainly find that maybe that activity piece is where you can get players to really understand, well, what, what is the challenge? What, what are we trying to solve here? Um, and what are the solutions? And, and the solutions can be in that middle part, that activity, and within the other two games too. I, I think it's good. And I, I think what's great here is that you actually have some, there's a great diversity within the coaching workforce too. Um, you know, as you do on a daily basis, you might work with, somebody from the Portuguese soccer community or the Croatian or the Canadian or there's a lone lost Englishman like myself. <laughs> and I think Canada's great like that because you, you have this cool, like almost coaching melting pot of ideas. And I think it's just really having those principles and that focus on the individual first and foremost. Yeah, I, I loved all of that. And I think I actually prefer the progressive method as well of the warm-up and then doing an activity and then maybe you do another activity and then you get into the game i think a lot of coaches actually use this the problem is here for canada as well is you you need to understand the gag methodology and you need to practice using it because you need to do it when you do your evaluations for different courses and then typically they can be very harsh on you and you end up failing and then you need to do it all over again so it, it is kind of a double-edged sword of i would like to coach in this way but my governing body over my head is telling me I need to coach in this way. And I think sometimes we can be lacking a bit of like the style of coaching 
can sometimes be forgotten about as we become like robots in the way that we are supposed to coach. But I wanted to ask you as well about um, just going back to this unstructured environment piece too of in the UK and maybe you've seen other spaces as well across Europe of what kind of spaces are there beyond these community development projects just around the communities that young kids can do to play the game more and practice just on their own unstructured play of getting a chance to be on the ball yeah so it's a really good question too so back home we have we have a whole ton of outside astroturf facilities and and some of them are actually quite small and if you imagine just like say 15 tiny little adult five-a-side fields and i i to be honest i haven't really seen this over here i've seen like big astroturf outside facilities but I think the first thing actually is the climate. Mm-hmm. So Canada, I think Canada, like, you know, these take COVID out of the equation. Those outside um, AstroTurf fields will be used all throughout the year, you know, even during the winter. Uh, even now in the UK, they've actually had snow and everyone's kind of losing their mind and <laughs> <laughs> claiming to be snowed in and there's like two centimetres and have to have a giggle. Now I live in Canada, but... Um, so we we have these. So firstly, there's there's a ton of them. So like, um, and if you want to research this, there's centers called Power League goals. There's probably even new ones now that have popped up in the two years since I've left the UK. And like, I think of my nephew, who's now I think he's twenty actually, but even four or five years ago, it wouldn't be uncommon for him to have like a pound or two, maybe the equivalent of like five bucks to go there. And they will let him use a brand new 4G AstroTurf field, like small field, but a cage. So it's their own. It's almost like what I had, but just more, you know, with actual artificial turf and and four walls. So it's symmetrical. And so like kids were typically engaged in that because also kids have changed a lot since I grew up in the 90s, right? Like they want to be on nice Astro. They don't want to be on hard concrete and running around a, a, a climbing frame and that's fine like if you have access to that so i think the first thing really is is there an opportunity for perhaps maybe it's the private sector maybe maybe this is the voluntary sector working with with clubs organized clubs i think we need to see more of these small little type astroturf cages being built or, or being fashioned but they do good deals for the kids so i know certainly a lot of those places because during the day there's no adults there you know, so if a kid finishes school, have developed that culture of using these AstroTurf cages. Um, and I know that's really easy to say, right? Because these things require capital. And maybe that ties in back to the fact that, you know, it's an organized sport environment. So the the market might not be there to begin with. I'm kind of a believer in build it and they will come type adage. Alternatively, you do have the school gyms. And I think the other thing I've really loved here is how all the clubs embrace futsal especially in the winter because you have to but you know is there an opportunity to even do that in the summer you know crack the doors open and have the kids playing still playing those small-sided games um or, or in addition to you know can we can we expand that futsal offering to be more of a yearly thing as opposed to just when the weather is too cold and the other thing so i actually i'm studying my master's right now in adult education and one of the the learners on there was telling me about Alfonso Davies because 
we were speaking a little bit and, and apparently Vancouver Whitecaps do have something akin to a kicks yeah. and you may know more to, it's on my list to research this <laughs> and apparently Fonzie I think I'm allowed to call him Fonzie oh, now I've lived for a few years <laughs> I'm, I'm claiming fake Canadian status <laughs> but apparently Fonzie either was discovered there or certainly accessed that and it, it reminded me of kicks it was a place where you didn't need money you could go there. The coaches were approachable, you know, like not mentors in a structured way, but there were people like your big bro, you know, within a, yeah. a boundary. So, you know, is there an opportunity for, because ultimately that's going to benefit Canada in, in the long run. Um, and it excites me when you see players like Jonathan David, Alfonso Davies. So how do we get more of those? How do we, how do we develop these, you know, I call them the Mavericks. And I think that's too harsh, actually, because they can still they're still disciplined. They still play a team game. But like uh, Fonzie's got that that kind of what do they call it? The broken leg where he like flaps his leg a little bit and then goes. And and it's just those kind of environments that, you know, maybe there's not even there's there might be an adult there, certainly to supervise. But there's nobody there taking them through a session. It's and, and maybe for us, it's do we allow time at the start of a session where it's like, hey, guys, you know, we call them arrival activities. Fields over there, pug nets are out or goals are up. You got 10 minutes, boom, go. And you can build, imagine that social corner as well. Globally and in the game, we just haven't allowed kids to, to socialize because we've controlled and dominated all of these environments. So I'm always trying, I'm always cognizant. But it's also very hard if you're on a field that costs 160 bucks an hour, maybe you don't have the time or so to answer your question i think more spaces like that or certainly more utilization of existing spaces in the summer as well i think could be a, a huge huge bonus we have to view sport as as a fun pursuit yes we want we certainly want to get better we have goals you and i work in a standards-based environment but that is there a part of that athlete's diet that is kind of just purely for fun and, and led and controlled by by them. I absolutely agree. And I think we definitely need more of these spaces around Canada and these programs, that, like the one you mentioned in BC. I'm sure there's more that exist, um, but they don't exist enough. And I think that's clear. Just having a space in your home for these players that have the ability to, like we're on a lot of Zoom sessions right now, and you can tell that the players that have this space are having a chance to practice. But what about the ones that don't? Like the ones that don't are having a barrier right now to get better at the game and i think if we can create more of these programs in our communities and in our outside environments just in terms of community spaces like there's lots of tennis courts and basketball courts around why can't we just have like a little soccer cage like you mentioned i think it would be amazing so i guess just kind of wrapping up unless you want to speak anything more about that i'm interested in just knowing if there's anything else in terms of your coaching methodologies or anything that you want to speak on just because of how knowledgeable you are about the game and everything that you've spoken about i'd be interested in hearing more about your methodologies your philosophies if there's anything powerful that you want to drop on us yeah no i'm glad you mentioned the i i do love this basement culture um and the thing i've noticed here is you know and i'm always trying to look at the wider picture and i think that's my degree but canada largely has higher levels of affluence you know i don't have the figure but when i coach here versus the environment i'm from and i coached in the kids are very different you know they have different different lifestyles 
they have different challenges. I'm not, I'm not saying that just because you have financial security and that doesn't mean that you don't still have the hardships of life and other aspects. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you're right. On those Zooms, I'm seeing kids that have like turf in the basement. In London, England, firstly, you, you don't even have a basement and you certainly don't have a spare room. I'm thinking of my friends and families and I can't think of many people that have like a spare room just for some sort of recreation, right? So I think that's really cool. I think there's an opportunity there. And like I said, COVID has actually has actually pushed us down this realm of, of ball mastery. And and once again, there's, there's arguments against it. But, you know, ultimately, if, if a kid, I think of it, if a kid's in a basement focused on doing a task, achieving a challenge, you know, we were on that call last night and I'm seeing kids doing hocus pocus and and I remember trying stuff like that before before my friend came down. It might be 10 a.m. in the morning. That's the sort of stuff I was doing because nothing else was available. There was no, I didn't belong to a team. I didn't have someone to play with. Kicking a ball up against a concrete wall. Yep, that was me. So I think in a weird way, COVID's kind of opened up some of these uh, opportunities, right? Um, my personal hope is that, yeah, we, we go back to our, our awesome social team environments, but I hope the kids continue that. So I don't know if it's a Sunday morning and they kind of like have 30 minutes or 45 minutes. They think, I'm going to go down to the basement. I'm going to go because I did that during, you know, during, during lockdown and I was good at it. And actually my coaches saw it and they said I was good at it. And, and then suddenly that confidence comes into the game. So I think, so, I think we have a little bit of a responsibility. And, and this is more personal thing as well. Like I, I do really preach the merits of practice because too many kids just practice at practice you know and i've said that to some of my boys i said you know that's great but what do you do in addition to that anything i've achieved or i'm trying to achieve i have to put in more and and i think once again we've developed this culture where everything has to be driven through us um and that's great we can give detail we can monitor it we can inspire but yeah i, I want a kid to, to love it the ball and to actually really enjoy that process with themselves. Yeah, there's, there's an opportunity there for sure for us to see if we can try and keep that going. Definitely. COVID-19 is going to make Canada one of the best soccer nations in the world all of a sudden. We're just practicing our basements. We're going to get so good. Well, you, you have that World Cup coming up, right? So I think it is fascinating. I think probably the last thing really is is just building that individual mindset. And, you know, I've I can hear people saying, yeah, you don't want to build a ball hog. And, and it's, it's not really what I mean. It's it's just somebody that if they have a player coming at them or maybe even two players and they can't see a pass, they've got that confidence and that little bit of ability, or as we say in England, they've got it in their locker that, you know, they can turn out of trouble or they can find a solution. And, and too often we kind of just, we feel like passing is the only solution, you know. Um, we didn't really get into rondos and, I think that's probably a good thing for for now. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, some sometimes our methodologies only kind of actually encourage the one solution. I think that's another debate that's been had. So, certain types of rondos where there's no transition, the defender wins the ball and then they just kick it out or kick it to coach, and then it's back as you were, and or there's no goal, there's no scope to dribble or move. It's kind of, and and once again, I know I'm simplifying it, and I before I get criticize for rondos i i understand they do have a a useful application but you know we're talking about elite athletes and and i think that's the other thing when everyone's looking at pep guardiola and he's like well if he's doing it they're adults they're elite they're they have the technical 
ability locked in. You're dealing with young people that have different different motivations, different competencies, and different expectations. You know, if I was to summarize, just remember that the game's mm-hmm. fun. At least in that development phase, for me, it's still largely an individual pursuit. The relationship between the player and the ball, and and I think time comes later on for them to develop those the awareness of or the understanding, sorry, of the principles of the game. Um, and, and I think that's really the key is just like, it's like a recipe. You've got to know your method, right? You've got to know what to put in when. It's just getting that recipe right. So at the end, can you tell I'm hungry? I'm going to use a cake and add <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I just want to end on a note that um, specifically London, Ontario, which is where I've been blessed to, to work for the last two years, um, is such a soccer like hotbed. Like it's, there's so much talent there. And like the young people, I'm not just saying that, are just so nice and just so respectful and and so like positive towards the sport. So I think for me, yeah, just just kind of acknowledging that and being grateful for that. You know, being an Englishman kind of homesick, seeking that passion for soccer, like landing in London was like, maybe it was written in the stars, right? Being called London. <laughs> but um, yeah, just, just grateful for that and just thankful and just want to kind of anybody just give me an opportunity or or has worked alongside me in whatever capacity is it's just cool to be part of that and hopefully I can add to it and continue to grow as a person myself yeah that's awesome thanks for saying that and we're not all nice people but there's <laughs> there's quite a few nice people here in London Ontario uh so yes I I did really enjoy this you speak so well about all of these different things where can people find more of you if you don't mind sharing that yeah um I am on Twitter uh, I think my handle is my name, so lowercase Adam. I think it's dot Stapleton, and there's an eight because in my mind I'm Iniesta. But really all <laughs> I share, all I share with him is is the hair or lack of. I also with one of my good friends Dan, who's based back in England. We also run a website and a and a resource channel on Twitter called Student of the Game. So I do contribute to that sometimes sporadically more so in the summer i have more uh, regular content twitter is kind of where i'm mostly active also currently with the london whitecaps so i'm really pleased to be head coach of their 05 regional boys and and the assistant coach to the uh u17 opdl so you know you you might bump into me if you're in north london in the summer coaching so yeah i, I you can find me i'm on twitter i'm always happy to have a conversation about soccer See, I called it soccer that time. I need to get, I need to get brownie points. <laughs> awesome. So, yes, check Adam out on Twitter, adam.stapleton8, and also studentofthegame.co.uk, I believe that's... Dot .com, actually. Oh, I don't, you I don't think we have, cool. Yeah. I'll send you the links, and you can yeah. put it in the, uh, the bio for sure. That's perfect. That's what I was going to say as well. I will put that in the description so you can see it there and check out all of what adam has going on and as always i am definitely interested in hearing from you and hearing your feedback how do we create these sort of unstructured environments more opportunities for kids to develop some of these skills techniques that they are missing in the game right now how do we do that in canada how do we do that beyond canada into the global stage but adam again thank you so much for joining me i hope to have you on very soon for another one If you want to check out more of what themastermindsite.com has to offer, as always, you can head over to themastermindsite.com. Of course, we have some interesting pieces very similar to this, such as an article titled, Why You Shouldn't Punish Your Players, 
I've talked in the past about why a women's Canadian Premier League should be the next step for Canada soccer. If you're interested in these kind of topics where we scrutinize the landscape of the soccer scene and how we can make it better, definitely head on over towards the mastermindsite.com and check those out. You can also find me at mastermindsite at Desmond Reese. And if you're interested in more of the coaching content, you can also check out Coaching TMS on Twitter. I cannot leave without thanking you, the listeners, for listening to this episode. I hope you have a good one, and I hope to see you very soon for another episode. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.